on this episode of The Kinked Wire. You don't just put a filter in and forget about it. Mm. And that's what used to happen. And when you put it, it's like anything else. We are clinical physicians in IR and vascular surgery. And when you put these filters in, your patient, you need to follow them. And it means clinical follow-up, and it may mean imaging follow-up. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the international radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, surweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, Kinked Wire host Warren Krakoff speaks with interventional radiologist Matt Johnson about the evolution of IVC filters, the upcoming IVC filter clinical practice guidelines, and the status of the FDA-requested PRESERVE study. Well, thanks so much for being with us. And I know we're going to be talking about filters. Just, you know, quickly, it's hard to ignore what's going on in the world. Are you folks doing okay with COVID where you're located? So I'm in Indianapolis, the university complex in Indianapolis. So we're basically referral for a large portion of people in Indiana. And, we were, and Indiana was moderately hit. So we have treated a couple thousand COVID patients and at one point had more than 100 people in the hospital on ventilators. So it's here, but it's not like it is in New York. So we're kind of moderate. How about you? We're sort of holding our own. Obviously, we're all looking around to see about a next wave and, and so on and so forth. But so far, uh, I'm in Tampa, Florida, not in South Florida. Um, so we've been a little bit better off in South Florida. But, you know, we'll have to obviously, like everyone else, we'll just have to all see what happens. So filters, you know, I am not embarrassed to say I finished my fellowship in 2005. So I've got a little bit of gray behind my ears, obviously. And filters weren't brand new back then. <laughs> so uh, we've seen we've seen them come a long ways. And sometimes it feels like we go uh, in circles with filters uh, in terms of the evolution. But I know that you've come up recently and we're heavily involved with the clinical practice guideline for filters. What do you think has brought about this need? Well, you, you mentioned that filters aren't new, and uh, yet we seem to go in circles. And you finished in 2005. I finished in 94. Oh, okay. And, yeah, I remember putting filters in. I remember walking in one day, and one of my co-fellows had caught a guide wire around a filter and was dealing with it. <laughs> and that was in, like, 93. So knowledge of IVC filters is very similar to the general knowledge of venous thromboembolic disease and that knowledge is limited. The data in what constitutes DVT, pulmonary embolus, the continuum, how best to treat beyond the obvious, yeah, we treat with anticoagulation, but for how long, in what circumstance, and what happens when you can't anticoagulate, and what does it mean to not be able to anticoagulate, and what happens as people move through the continuum. And that's really poorly defined all the way through. For example, with pulmonary lysis, we are not sure yet about definitions. And it's all related. And the filters, having been around so long, since the 60s, right there where we were doing ligations, we were still filtering. I mean, we began the filtering. Well, the mobinuta might be a little bit earlier than that. Mm. So it was replacing cava ligation or occlusion as a surgical intervention. And it was based upon the fact that it looked like it was better than that. So we started with filters. And then filters were found over the course of time to not be perfect. And then over the course of time, then they got modified to allow retrieval in the early 2000s. And then people noticed that more filters were in place because, hey, we can put them in because it became easier. And then because it became obvious that filters were easier to place, better than ligation, and there were clearly people who weren't appropriately anticoagulated, 
there came a time when we were putting in hundreds of thousands of filters in the late 80s and then 2010, kind of a watershed year. And the number and type of filters being placed in this area where we don't really understand a lot of things brought a watershed down. And so then people were putting in tons of filters. People were seeing tons of complications. People were trying to figure out how it all related. And we still don't know. But the clinical practice guideline was an effort to give people the best knowledge possible to allow them to use available evidence to use filters in the best way possible. I think that's a great idea. And I really like the linking between our knowledge of thromboembolic disease and proliferation or later non-proliferation of filter use, because I think you're exactly right. You could almost do a, a knowledge chart over time and see how over usage and see how that has, has changed and expanded. And I think it's interesting too, that, you know, you mentioned cable interruption, obviously is first thought to be good to treat thromboembolic disease, which is a surgical intervention at the time. And now, of course, we have, in addition to IRs, we've got vascular surgeons and cardiologists and probably other folks involved with filter care, placing filters anyway, and treating patients with thromboembolic disease. Uh, so again, sort of have come full circle in some ways with that. With the clinical practice guideline, my assumption, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that this is really meant for IRs or, or, or generated by IRs. Is that is that accurate? The uh, whole idea behind the clinical practice guideline is it's a different era for interventional radiology. Our practice in the past has been guided predominantly by monosocietal position papers, where a group of us would review in a fairly unstructured manner a variety of things and come up with our thoughts upon it. And this IVC filtered clinical practice guideline is the first one that SIR has done using gold standard methodology. It's actually the standards for trustworthy clinical systematic review of the literature by the National Academy of Medicine. So there are standards to look at research, and this was done in that method, and it was done with a multidisciplinary expert panel. We had representation from the Society for Vascular Surgery, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, the American College of Chest Physicians, the Society for Vascular Medicine, and even the American Society of Hematology and the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. So we sat in a group with people from all of those societies and discussed the literature using PICO methodology, P-I-C-O, which is, unless you're a literature review geek like I am, you probably don't know, but it's looking at the population that's involved, the intervention that's performed, the comparison group, and then outcomes, and then formulating questions related to those things, and then trying to come up with guidelines using the most rigorous standardized literature review of randomized controlled trials as the gold standard. And with this clinical practice guideline, we came up with 34. Now, if you look at the literature regarding inferior vena cava filters, you'll see thousands upon thousands of studies, many of which are very good, but 34 that we came up with, which were randomized and met the minimum standard for review as far as quality of the recommendation came. And that itself is quite representative of the problem. When you have thousands upon thousands of studies, and I'm not exaggerating, I've been through them, and what you see is tons of retrospective case studies, things that don't really allow you to look at the value of the intervention. They allow you to say, this occurred, this was done, but you have no idea what would happen if it hadn't been done. The clinical practice guideline looked at those as its primary uh, outcome or the ones of, we have two groups, one got an intervention, one did not, and then we evaluated them. Multiple different positions from different specialties. I think that's really going to be a game changer going forward. The, the multi-societal involvement, as you said, um, you know, because for IRs to have one set of guidelines and vascular surgeons, I mean, it just it so needlessly complicates matters. 
And when you go back to indication for it, is you look at a doctor in practice trying to figure out when to put in a vena cava filter or whether to or how, the guideline completely conflicts. There's almost no agreement except acute pulmonary embolus and acute contraindication anticoagulation. I think that's important because, you know, it's sort of the end user in a sense that you think about the poor referring physician saying, well, gee, this is an indication for IR, but if I call the vascular surgeon on call, it's not an indication for that. I mean, who can possibly keep track of all that? So now that we're talking, you know, about the clinical practice guideline, how has that changed from, at least from the perspective of IR, from what we would have thought of as being, you know, so-called classic indications for IVC filters? Um, And how did you come up with the changes? When you look at the 34 studies that were the randomized control trials that allow us to give quality of information, that's not enough. We we found it wasn't enough to answer the questions. And so a lot of what we came up with were based upon consensus of the group, based upon non-randomized studies. And it's part of the methodological things, these standards that kind of make it difficult in this field where you don't have randomized control trials. One of the things I argued to the FDA before we created Preserve was that you can't do an ethical randomized control trial in the general filter population because we believe that there is value. And so if you take a population where a person is potentially going to get a filter, now in America, that means most commonly contraindication to anticoagulation. So you have a person with active, acute venous thromboembolic disease, and then they can't get anticoagulated. So then you would randomize them to filter or no filter, but you can't because then you're taking a person. You can't do that. And that's why we did preserve as we did. When you look at the randomized controlled trials, the populations were needs to be treated for venous thromboembolic disease and is going to get anticoagulated. So everybody in those studies that was randomized got anticoagulated and then got a filter. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, but those are two of the 34 studies. So when you look at how we came to our conclusions, it was, what are the appropriate populations that should be involved? And what, well, what about a person who's got an acute DVT, central DVT, and cannot be anticoagulated? Is a filter appropriate? What about a pulmonary embolus? Is it appropriate? Because those are two different things. Having mm-hmm. a pulmonary embolus and no clot in your lower extremities is a filter appropriate then take the converse. You haven't yet had a PE, but you have a big old femoral clot and you cannot be anticoagulated. So initially, all of the filters are approved to prevent recurrent PE. They were cleared for preventing recurrent pulmonary embolus. That's it. And so when you think about it, that's not how we're mostly doing it in practice and maybe not even the most appropriate because maybe a person who's had the PE and doesn't have any clot at all, and we know it, in the lower extremities maybe doesn't need it as much. And there are no randomized studies to talk about it. So you have to get to that level of discussion to think about where the appropriateness is. And then you have to include time. And time is not part of these things. When was the clot? Is it acute? Where is it? And so all of those things came into play in the discussion. And I learned a lot because to hear it from the perspective of a hematologist, looking at, well, a person had a clot, is being treated, and now develops a complication. That's one of our indications, the complication of anticoagulation, should you put a filter in. Well, the reality is time matters, location matters. And so the discussion came about from that. When we looked at the literature, found that the quality of the randomized stuff didn't allow us to make a lot of decisions, we then also looked at the rest of the literature. And in many of the resultant recommendations, their consensus of the group. It's not randomized controlled data telling us that this is not what you do. You get together this group of experts, put the questions together, look at the literature and determine whether we can answer and then come up with something that you can offer. So one thing the clinical practice guideline demonstrated is that we don't know a lot about neostromobiotic disease and intervention. And we have to do the best we can. And then here's what we need to do to study it. 
And that's why it all is going to tie into play with things like Preserve, because we are studying it. So it's basically perfect time for this clinical practice guideline, because it's very common procedure. It's very controversial, and we are the primary people that put it. Yes, cardiologists and surgeons put in filters, but radiologists and interventional radiologists put in around 60% or more of the filters. And I think, too, you know, it's sort of historically in the classic repertoire, I guess, if you will, of interventional radiologists. I mean, whatever the percentages are now, that's just sort of a go-to procedure that you, know, you, you just have to have in your quiver. Speaking about Preserve, where do things stand now with that trial? When do you expect to have results and what are things looking like there? The last subject of around 1,400 subjects was enrolled in March of 2019. The one-year data outcomes are the primary data outcomes. The one-year window was up to 14 months. So the last person's window closed in early May, and we closed the data set in early May. So that means we now have six months to provide those data to the FDA. During that time, we will also be working on the manuscript. The theoretical time course is FDA gets the data around November-ish, and we've created the paper and submitted it, so hopefully it'll be available to the rest of the world early 2021. Oh, okay, great. So this is coming up. We should get ready for this. And it's interesting, though, coinciding with clinical practice guideline, how well has this been embraced by some of the other specialties who are placing filters? It's too early to tell. I mean, the people with whom I work are the ones representing the society. We had 100% consensus on every question, which is pretty great because nobody knows everything and you have to trust other experts in their fields. And so when people explain things, we had consensus. I don't know how far that has moved out into the rest of the society. I think there's great knowledge of Preserve. Without the outcomes, all we know that it has occurred. I think the one major effect of Preserve, that it appears that it it supports the structured follow-up methodology, which is so important. Mm. If you have structured follow-up, people are going to get better filter-related care in large part, getting them out when they don't need them. Again, data aren't allowed. I can't say a lot, but I am allowed to say how many people got filters out, and it was a much higher proportion than you would see outside of a structured follow-up study. Not a surprise, right? People are brought back, they're questioned, we get imaging, and we then see things. And that, I think, is going to be a major thing from both the clinical practice guideline and preserve and these discussions, right? Just this continual emphasis on filters and venous thrombo and lock disease throughout the country is that you don't just put a filter in and forget about it. Mm. And that's what used to happen. And when you put it, it's like anything else. We are clinical physicians in IR and vascular surgery. And when you put these filters in, your patient, you need to follow them. And it means clinical follow-up, and it may mean imaging follow-up. I think people probably would benefit from imaging follow-up. If you have a retrievable filter and it's in place and it's going to stay in, I think you should follow it. And I'm, this is over the course of my career. I think that maybe every year you get a CT. Another thing we think, complications occur more with time. I mean, that's a general statement. Seems very reasonable. Pablo Morales did a computer modeling paper that was published that showed that the risk benefit of filters optimized in around the first month and then decreased such that the risk benefit of having a filter after around a couple months, it was better not to have a filter. And so that's a couple months. And if you're going to leave a filter in for a person who may need lifelong filtration, Mm -hmm. it may be better to follow that person, say, every year with a limited CT. If you see perforation, if you see something else, the patient may still need a filter, but doesn't necessarily that filter. 
again, that's not anything that I can say has occurred from our studies and the reviews other than my gestalt, but I think that may be something worth stressing. These are our patients. Someone has to take care of them. And with imaging follow-up, you're following the major potential problems. Yeah. One of the major things that we see people complaining of in litigation, for example, is pain. And pain is inscrutable. Is it related or not? Mm -hmm. But if you have a person with pain, especially in imaging, and you see perforation, that may be an indication to deal with it. So I think the data will support follow-up. It's obvious, but it's not being done. So I think this would be a benefit of the light that we're shining on filters and venous thrombomolic disease. That's terrific. And I think coming back to where we started, I mean, that that represents a real change, at least from when I was in training in, in terms of filters. I mean, we would say, you know, and like you said, the late aughts, you know, okay, well, you know, make sure you follow up. But that's not mm -hmm. the same as that's not the same as having, a, as you suggest, a structured follow up program with imaging that, uh, you know, you really see if there's a problem or, or, or something that can be intervened upon. So that does represent a big change. And it's really interesting that we have this technology that's, you know, not brand new, but is undergoing constant and frequent revision. And, and, and I think it's terrific that you've uh, managed to get together with uh, all the folks placing these devices uh, to make sure our patients are, are getting the best possible care, given what we know now. As we sort of close things out here, we always like to ask uh, uh, probably the toughest question to answer, but, uh, but I'll give you a whack at it, which is if there's one thing that you could change, it would be in your power to change with healthcare today, what would it be? I love that question. I would like to decrease the disparity in availability and quality of care in America. There is so much variation in what is available to people. And you don't know, right? As a patient, as a person sitting on you know, your home, suddenly you get sick and now you become a patient. You go to the nearest hospital and you think that you're gonna get the best care there is possible. You think that. And the reality is you're not necessarily gonna get the best care possible. And it may affect your life. And that is, to me, very sad. I would like us as a nation and doctors and healthcare providers beyond doctors to be able to know that when a patient comes to us, we are doing the best that can be done. And that involves things like what we're talking about. You got to know what the disease is and what the best treatments are in order to do it. So we, we've got a long way to go to get there and we're not going to make it perfect like COVID. COVID has shown that there are populations that are deferentially affected and they shouldn't be. We should do a better job of taking care of people. That was Dr. Matt Johnson talking about the changing role of IVC filters in the treatment of thromboembolic disease. We thank Dr. Johnson for his time and you for listening to King's Wire. Our host is Dr. Warren Krakow. Our editor is Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our production manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at irq.surweb.org.